else to say a little bit about my father. Um, and I'll get you first... Yeah, I'll get you first to start looking uh, up the reading for today. It's Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 19. It's on page 11, sorry, 1212. It's 1212. So the reading is about a better country. How's that related to my father? I hear you ask. Um, I could have been a 10-pound pom, but I wasn't. Um, I had my first birthday on a ship coming to Australia. Now, the best thing my father ever did was to move us to Australia, which was clearly a better country. But I have one enduring question that has never been answered. You see, my father was not a great communicator, even when asked directly and often. And I never could find out why I was not a 10-pound pom. And it appears that uh, having a family, uh, that is my mother and me, he decided to have a cabin and pay full price for it. So that is the only explanation I can find as to why I'm not a 10-pound pom. But I am definitely in a better country. And we'll see as we read this passage that Abraham sought a better country, a heavenly one under God. By faith, Abraham was called, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of, a country, of the country when they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when, test, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Barry. And uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, uh. 
And uh, hey, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. It's a great, great honour to be a dad, isn't it? I'm going to pray. You're going to keep Hebrews 11 chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 open, and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good, good father to us, and help us to be good children by listening to your words now uh, as we think about them in Scripture. Amen. Amen. Well, we are talking about grace. And uh, is that working? Can't see it. Hey, grace. It's the name of a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. Grace. She takes the blame. She covers the shame. She removes the stain. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Well, they're the lyrics of a fairly unknown song called Grace by a fairly irrelevant band these days called U2, which uh, was once the biggest musical band in the world. Grace, it's the name of girl. It's a thought that changed the world. It makes beauty out of ugly things. But grace is also that short prayer that we say before we eat dinner. And grace is the way a ballerina dances. And grace is the way a kind man speaks. So... What is grace exactly? Because it sort of sounds like it's just about everything. Well, in the Christian faith, grace primarily refers to the way that God treats us. It relates to his unmerited goodness towards undeserving people. It's his kindness that we don't earn, we don't deserve, and we have no entitlement to it. So we receive it as a gift with gratitude in our hearts, at least we ought to. There is something that theologians call common grace, which God gives to all people, like life itself. That's a grace of God he gives to every human being, regardless of faith or otherwise. Jesus reminds us that that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he gives life and sun and rain and friendship and love and marriage and family as a common grace to believers and unbelievers alike. But in the life, death, resurrection and return of Jesus, there's a a real edge to grace. It not only refers to his goodness in creating humanity and sustaining our existence, it now refers specifically to his kindness in Christ, in living among us, in dying for us sacrificially, in rising again before us triumphantly so that we look forward to him taking us to be with him in a glorious eternity when he returns. Now, some people say grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, it doesn't, right? It's an acronym, not an acronym, but I really do love that sentiment. And so for the rest of this term, we're going to look at people in the Bible who were transformed by the grace of God. Some of them are in the New Testament, like Mary Magdalene and Timothy, people who have beautiful stories that resound deeply of God's riches at Christ's expense. Some of them are from the Old Testament, like Rahab and Hezekiah, before the time of Jesus. So their stories aren't dripping with Christ. He hadn't yet come. But if you listen carefully, like carefully, you can hear a theme tune that foreshadows a melody that only gets louder and louder with the coming of Jesus into human history in a barn in Bethlehem. But today... Uh, as we start almost at the very beginning of the Bible with Abraham. And his is a story of grace. It's Father Abraham, which is fitting for Father's Day, don't you think? Now, in my previous job as a youth minister, we took young people away about half a dozen, six or seven times a year. Basically, every holidays, we had 
We took some of them away somewhere. And I cannot say that I loved camps, a lot of effort, big responsibility and all that. But I, I loved what they did in the lives of our young people uh, and for our group as a whole. And I think the best part for me was at the end of each day, we'd gather around a campfire and we'd sing some songs and the leader would give a short talk or reflection and we'd get the kids to share stuff that they'd been learning during the day and then we'd pray. And really hearing them share and pray and sing with joy was the best bit. Uh, except we used to sing this song called Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Anybody know this song? So stupid. It goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. So far, so good. But then next time you sing it, you've got to wave your right arm. Father Abraham had many sons. Uh, and then the next time around, you had to sing it with both your, your right arm and your left arm waving. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Uh, and then the next time around, you had, to, you had to sing it with your leg, like kicking out like this while you're doing this with your arms as well. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm getting tired. Blah, 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 blah. And then, um, then it was both legs kicking out. And then in the final one, you had to nod your head as well, like a complete lunatic. And I just thought that like, people have got enough reasons to think Christians are weird. We don't need to like, give them more. And uh, I also thought it was dumb because like, you could legitimately sing this song as a Muslim or as a Jew or as a Christian. But, but on reflection, I thought it was an unusual song because the story of Abraham's life is not the story of a man with many sons, is it? It's mainly a story of a man with no sons, and then with one dubiously produced, and then finishing with one who nearly died. <laughs> Seems to me the song, Father Abraham Had Many Sons, bears little relationship to the story of Abraham's life. So, if Abraham didn't have many sons, precisely how is his a story of grace? Well, that's what we're going to trace through Genesis 12 to 24. And we read of Abraham's family tree first in Genesis 11, but his story starts in Genesis 12 when God appeared to a 75-year-old man who worshipped other gods beyond the Euphrates and God famously said to him these words, which Jackson Knox knows. Isn't that great? Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now those words, that's the grace of God in full view, isn't it? Like There's no, absolutely no way in which this pagan, childless old champ called Abraham had any entitlement to new land or becoming a great nation with a great name, with the blessing of God, or indeed the promise of being a channel of blessing for all peoples, every other nation on earth, which as Christians, we believe, is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, who is the saviour of the world, but who could trace his human lineage back to Abraham. Right? That is grace. It is God's unmerited goodness towards an undeserving man. And boy, it must have been transformative, because we read in the very next verse, verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, his nephew, all the possessions they had, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, friends, would you do that? Leave everything you've ever known at the age of 75 without knowing really where you were going. 
says, I don't think so. But Abraham did. And so the story looks like it's off to a good start. But of course, it's only a start because in the same chapter, just six verses later, we discover there's a famine in the land of promise. And Abram travels south to Egypt to survive. And what does this great man of faith do? Well, he pimps out his wife to the pharaoh of the day. Did you know that detail? He was scared that if they found out Sarah was his wife, they would kill him. And so he pretended to be her brother and Pharaoh took her as his wife. And it was only after God inflicted a serious disease upon Pharaoh and his whole household after he'd been with Sarah that Pharaoh let Sarah go and sent Abraham on his way. Well, how's that for faith? In the next few chapters, Abraham shows a degree of righteousness. You might remember he parted ways with his nephew Lot and he, and he let Lot take possession of the more fertile lands. And then when Lot got carted away by some local warlords, Abraham mustered up his fighting men to rescue him. So there's some bright moments. By the time we get to Genesis 15, Abraham lamented before God that he had no sons, that his legacy would be left to a servant called Eliezer, of Damascus, And you remember that God, who really was like a father to Abraham, took him outside and said in Genesis 15 verse 4, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Look up. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And once again, the promise of God appears to have been transformative for Abraham because the next verse includes words that have been picked up by our New Testament as archetypal of Christian faith. It's a pattern of what God wants from every single one of us, even now. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed. He trusted in the promise of God. You know, Romans 4 says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, being fully persuaded God had the power to do what he had promised. Being fully persuaded God would deliver. Now, if you know the story of Genesis 15, God then instructs Abraham to, <laughs> it's weird, isn't it, to get some animals and to cut them in half, and then to arrange the halves opposite each other. And then God passed between the pieces, like viscerally communicating to Abraham that he would keep his promises or else would suffer the same fate as these animals whose carcasses he passed between. If that was even imaginable for God. So you've got a promise and then you've got a promise reiterated upon an oath in which God pledged himself to the point of death if he did not fulfill it. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But as the years passed and there were no sons or daughters, Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands, and if God was not going to get things moving, they would have to. And so Sarah gave her maid Hagar to Abraham to sleep with, and she bore him a son. And you think, ah, problem solved. But not quite. As Hagar and her son, Abraham's son, fled from them, 
because Sarah so badly mistreated them both in her jealousy. So Father Abraham had no sons, and then he had one son, and then he had none again. For the man of faith, it's a real topsy-turvy tale, isn't it? At each point when he fails, we empathise with his frailty, and yet we sense it doesn't quite get him off the hook, does it? Well, the chapters unfold in Genesis 17. God once again reiterates his promises to Abraham, who's nearly 100 years old, even instructing Abraham that he would call his long-awaited but not yet delivered son Isaac. Again, Abraham shows moments of greatness, pleading boldly before God for the sparing of Sodom, and moments of weakness, once again, pimping out his wife to a king called Abimelech. And finally, a son is born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And the son is still very young when God requires Abraham to take him up to a mountain where he would be sacrificed. And you can imagine the blood drained from Abraham's face, can't you, at such a request. How could God possibly require this? You know, this is, this is the fulfillment of your promise, God, for which I have waited so long. And he is the only way those grand promises you made can be fulfilled. Great nation, blessing to the world, all that. How can you possibly ask me for this, God? And you can imagine a winded Abraham pleading with God as he once pleaded for the city of Sodom. Or perhaps the dread with which he took each step up that mountain upon which Isaac would be sacrificed. Or maybe what he felt in his like guts when Isaac asked innocently about where's the lamb for the sacrifice and Abraham replied with deep irony God himself will provide it or perhaps even that moment when he raised the knife to strike his bound son only to hear the angel of God saying don't lay a hand on the boy and then seeing a ram struggling in a nearby thicket perfect for a burnt offering Indeed, God himself had provided. Not just a ram for a sacrifice, of course, nor even a long-awaited son, but via a long and winding and circuitous route, a hope of salvation for all people, a way for people to be friends again with the God who made them, but from whom they nevertheless nevertheless have turned away. You know, when we think of Abraham, we think of him as the great man of faith and our new testaments point us in that direction to a large extent describing him as the father of all with faith and I guess that's fair enough isn't it like he left his home and set out to an unknown land and he waited decades for a son only to surrender him up to death but when you look at the story of Abraham the larger theme is really the faithfulness of God isn't it the grace of God expressed in patient faithfulness towards his promises to Abraham when Abraham's faith wobbled and resolved. The story of Abraham is a story of a man who exhibited great faith. He is our forefather in the faith. But ask yourself the question, who is the hero in this story? When Abraham takes things into his own hands, they go pear-shaped and quickly. But when he simply trusts in the gracious promises of God, God never lets him down though that does not make for him an easy life. So it is a great story uh, of an old man 
transformed by the faithfulness of God to his promises and purposes and people. But how can we, Father Abraham's sons and daughters, be similarly transformed by this story of grace? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, which we read earlier, might hold the clues. Hebrews 11 considers Abraham's life and thinks about him leaving his own country in Ur at the command of God and his trust that God would provide him with a son even when he was required to offer him up as a sacrifice. And those two parts to the story provide helpful application for us because the way Abraham looked at the world can change the way that we look at the world. When you look at where you live, where we live, do you see it as really your slice of heaven, whether you've achieved it yet or you're toiling to get there? Or are you looking forward to a better place? I mean, how could Abraham possibly leave the only land that he'd known? Verse 10, have a read. Because he was looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. Or verse 16, as Barry riffed on, he was longing for a better country, a distant and heavenly one, one which God prepared for him. Verse 13 says that Abraham and Sarah and indeed their offspring admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Man, we labor so hard for our place in the sun, don't we? For our peace of the beaches. And if that dream becomes impossible, we move to another place that's cheaper but is as close to manly as we can afford. And that's not wrong. Boy, it can be dangerous for our souls when we invest so much in this city and in this land. And it just struck me that we are so thoroughly unlike foreigners and strangers on earth. We're inhabitants, aren't we? Titled landholders. And it's hard not to trust this ground that we rent or have bought. And truly believe that God has prepared a heavenly city for us, which is better. I mean, how can it possibly be better? Can I believe that in God's grace, he actually has something better in store for me? Abraham's story, it can powerfully impact our emotions and our attachments. And friends, I would encourage you to let the beauty of this place, which is undeniable, right? Operate as a teaser for the wonder of the distant heavenly city that awaits rather than being the chief goal or end in your life so that when you swim or surf or snorkel if you're a bit unco here or you fish or you run or you cycle or you walk past hereabouts or you just watch a sunrise you don't think wow I have made it this is the best but you think, man, how good will eternity with God in heaven be if this is the teaser, if this is the trailer? Wouldn't I be a fool, the greatest of fools, to trade anything for that promise of life with Jesus in splendor for eternity? And friends, this is why being generous is really good for us. Like, I'm not interested in your money. That's what the senior minister has to worry about. But I'm interested in kingdom generosity for what it does for our souls because I think it expresses trust in God's goodness and promises as well as a lighter grasp upon the promise of this world. Isn't it right that every time you give money away, 
every time you're willingly crimping. You're limiting in some ways some of your potential enjoyment here on earth because you're looking beyond immediate circumstances. You're looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. You're, you're saying, I mean, I don't even know if you realize when you're saying this, but you're saying by thinning out your wallet that you trust his grace in promising that and his faithfulness in fulfilling the promise to take you to be with him in eternal wonder. I mean, that's why generosity is one of our godly habits. It's the same with your time. I mean, why would you serve? Why would you possibly do that? Every time you serve, you're willingly crimping, you're, you're limiting some of your potential enjoyment on earth. You do it not just because you have been so served by Jesus in his life, death and resurrection, or just because you love people, but you do it because you realize you don't need to suck all the marrow out of this life, that carpe diem is utter crap. You're looking beyond immediate circumstances to a heavenly land where you will bask forevermore in the glowing fellowship with God. So you serve others and you serve God, and while you're doing that, it actually transforms you. Isn't it great how that works? Can I say to the parents or the would-be parents here, it's even like that for our children, right? What do we hope um, most for them? Dads, that they will make the best of this world, they will seize a slice of paradise for themselves, Parents, is that really what our program of parenting is organised around? Or do we rather hope that it might seek first the kingdom of God, that they might grasp lightly to this world, but breathe deeply in the promises of God that so surpass any promise this world makes? I want to say to dads, especially, but all parents, and in fact, every Christian who longs to see each new generation follow Jesus with all their heart so that's all of us who are christians no point wanting this for the sake of the children if you don't first want it for yourself it's going to be easier for them to get there if they can see it in operation in your life so you want to make sure that when your kids or indeed any of the kids at church look at your life they see you seeking first the kingdom of god rather than grasping at your slice of earthly paradise they need to see you honor god Love his word. Prioritize his church. Cherish his people. Serve in the world as well as provide for your kids, for which they ought to thank you as well. They ought to be thankful. And fathers and mothers, you've got to do this together and you need to do it together with the church as a whole. But everybody loses, man, everybody loses if the fathers in our church won't model a faithful and inspiring Christian life. Abraham looked forward to something better. Fathers, let us do the same. As we think about God's trust, uh, not God's trust, Abraham's trust in God, when it came to that provision of Isaac, it's just so hard to imagine doing that, isn't it? But it shows us that we can trust God's faithfulness to his promises to the point, in fact, where you can build your life upon them. That means you can obey him with confidence. It means that it's foolish to take things into your own hands, believing that you somehow know better than God. 
and so disobey him. You know, Romans 4 says Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Evan Thorpe shared how she could really rely on God to be her father when she didn't have an earthly father in her life. Hebrews 11 verse 11, read it with me, says Sarah too considered him, that's God, faithful who had made the promise. And when required to offer up Isaac, verse 17, let's read it together, tells us, he who had embraced the promises, that's Abraham, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Why? How could you possibly do that? Verse 19, he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Friends, you think about the situations you face. Maybe there's one that you're facing right now. The temptation to not trust God, to not believe his promises, to disobey God and take things into your own hands to fix it. Deliberately disobeying God will never be the fix. Believing and obeying him will be whatever that situation is in your life. And even if it's been a long one, he will not leave you alone. He will supply your daily needs. He will take you to be with him in glory. He has forgiven our sins, taken the blame, covered the shame, removed the stain. He loves you more than you know, more than you can ever grasp. And he's working within us to make us more like Jesus today. Father Abraham is saying to us, that is all true. It is all true. You can build your life upon these promises And so can your children. You can reason that God is capable of doing what he has said that he would. Well, as we finish up, it's a story of grace, isn't it? That word that can be a, a name of a girl or a thought that changes the world. Well, it changed Abraham. And his really is a story of grace. God took this old pagan childless man and made him father Abraham with one eventual son called Jesus who was a blessing to every nation on earth. But you know, friends, we stand in Abraham's footsteps when we trust in the promises of God and are transformed by God's faithfulness even when we know we ourselves are a pretty mixed offering. When we look beyond our present circumstances, not settling for things here, maybe even sacrificing things here because we long for a heavenly home. And trusting that God is with us right now and will welcome us into his everlasting and splendid arms. And if we do that, then, friends, we too will be a story of grace. Let's pray as we finish up. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for Father Abraham. We know him as a great man of faith. And yet we see across his life that you were truly the one who expressed faithfulness your promises and your people we see how that was the thing that made the difference in abraham's life let it make a difference in our life that we might long for a better place such that we can give up things here and that we can build our lives upon your promises such that we can trust you not taking things into our own hands to fix them and we pray that we would do all this for the sake of jesus in his name we pray Amen.